Hello, Mark Washbourne here, your host, and welcome to The Ready Podcast. Hello again, it's Mark Washbourne here from ReadyTech. Today's podcast is a discussion with a rather wonderful guest, and it's Joe Ingold, Associate Professor of Human Resource Management at Deakin University. Joe has dedicated much of her life to studying the areas of unemployment and employability. What the discussion is about is how employers can surface and engage with overlooked talent. I think it's an incredibly timely discussion in an era of critical skill shortages. We talk about why right now is the moment to rethink our approach to the makeup of our workforce and why inclusive recruitment is good for business. You'll also hear Joe's personal story and how we can think and work towards a more fair society. So, Joe Ingold, thanks for coming on the Ready Podcast. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Good to hear. I think we're going to, I feel like we're going to have a really interesting discussion. Joe, let's start with you. You've dedicated many years, well, may I say decades of your life to employability and and really focused on the the engagement of employers in that. So really like to start by asking, you know, what got you interested in this area? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and it has been decades. <laughs> it's soon passed. So when I did my undergraduate degree, I did a dissertation um, on youth unemployment because at the time my dad, um, it was the final job he had in his working career and um, and the best paid one, actually, because he was a joiner by trade. And then he worked um, on a youth training scheme, training young people in woodwork. Um, so I did a case study of a youth unemployment provider in the UK um, and then did various work after graduating but I always was really interested in employment and unemployment and I had a job as a researcher in the Department of Work and Pensions in the early 2000s when there was a real intensification of um, employment uh, well active labour market policy so it was a really interesting time and then yeah, after that, I then went to uh, do my master's and PhD. But I suppose what's really stayed with me all that time is a fascination with work, the kind of work people do, concern about people being unemployed or being in poor, poorly paid, poor quality work, which really stems from uh, my parents, I suppose, because they, um, I mentioned my dad was a joiner. Um, so he worked for 60 years to get a, a maximum state pension, which is another story. But he and my mum had fairly low paid work and and were never really happy in their jobs. It was kind of a means to, to live, really. So I found um, while my dad had some short periods of unemployment um, and went to what was called the labour exchange then I suppose that that tells a bit of my background story and um, and why I did education why I got degrees and my parents were always really passionate about me getting an education to be better qualified and not do the jobs that they had but that's not to say that those jobs can't be good if you see what I mean so that was a very long answer Mark. It makes total sense why you've committed so much of your life to this area you know and you know um you mentioned your parents there, it, you know, it brings to mind my own grandfather and he worked night shifts. And uh, I remember when I was a kid and I asked, oh, you must get used to it working, you know, getting up at, at these you know, strange hours in the night and working when everyone. And he said, no, I've never got used to it. And I and, and he hated work. <laughs> 
I remember that was so it. strongly, right? Yeah. You know, he yeah. His whole yes. mission in life, yeah, his number, his, his whole mission in life was to retire, get to retirement. Exactly. Yeah, and that was the same for my parents. Yeah, my mum would have kind of, she knew she had to work to live. Some, she always had more than one job. Yeah. Sometimes she had three jobs. Um, and she went all her life waiting to retire and then fortunately passed away a couple of years after she retired. So again, that spoke speaks really strongly to me that, you know, it's in, don't, well, there's a couple of life lessons, right? You know, don't just wait for, to retire to do what you want to do. But then within that also, let's, let's wait make work better for people let's try to help people who are outside the of of workplaces get into work yeah. and also make those jobs good jobs as well yeah so i once read this quote joe that really stuck with me and i'll always remember it that and it says that a job is not just a paycheck it's hope dignity and purpose and and I think that you know there's so so much in that I suppose so really you know it feels like a lot of your purpose has been around sort of this drive for equity and fairness and and helping to level the playing field as well so so that individuals get that opportunity to be fulfilled by work yeah absolutely and I love what you'd say about dignity there because I think un- unfortunately there are some jobs that are, that don't have that dignity hope and purpose and I suppose like going back to your original question um, about employers I became really interested in employers because they're the gateway to employment they're so cri- such critical actors in the employment unemployment space and particularly when it comes to active labour market policies and programmes as they commonly called or employment services as we know them Um, so I became really interested in the part that employers play in that which has been shockingly under-researched and also hasn't had enough attention focused on the demand side employers uh, within policy making either so that's something that I've really yeah dedicated the last 10 years to doing which has kept me quite busy and there's lots more work to do and hopefully um, contributing some um, some useful evidence to you know what people do and hoping that that can make a difference. I think that's a lovely segue to what I wanted to delve into next which is the focus of your work so talk to us a bit more about that and maybe share some of the really what are the really big findings you know sort of breakthrough findings that have come through your research. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the key findings when we look at employer engagement in um, employment services is the importance of relationships, which um, I think might might sound obvious, but I think that is time and again I've looked shown as being so critical um, I've got data from the UK from Denmark um, from Australia and it's uh, although there are some differences in terms of institutional context the the relationships are so critical by that I mean the relationships between providers of employment services and employers um, and also the relationships between employment services providers and and their their clients their customers so you've got kind and this triangular relationship between the three providers, employers, um, and the individual uh, looking to go into work, and that that human connection is so critical, and it's also really hard. It's easy to say, but it's it's actually really hard. If there was a magic bullet, then maybe everybody would be doing it right. But we can talk about that shortly. The other thing that I've found is that, especially in the UK and Australia, is that employers just don't really 
know about employment services and even if they know about them they might have they're overwhelmed by the number of different programs by the number of different providers they might have had bad experiences of employment services you know even several years ago but that's really tarnished their views um also they they don't see that sort of what we call the value proposition of employment services which i'm sure we're going to dig into shortly given the labor uh, you know the labor and skills need needs um, at the current time, but also that's that's a, a, a perennial issue as well when we look at workforce diversity. So a lot, there are lots of reasons why employers could really, you know, benefit from engaging in employment services, but but they just don't because they don't know about them, they don't know how to, um, and they, they don't really, they're not sold the benefits of them, I suppose. So I suppose those are the two standout findings. Um, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's other aspects, but those are the really key ones that really stand out. Let's start with that aspect of relationships. You know, I think that mm. it's interesting to delve into, you know, it sounds like it's really about humans connecting better and maybe there's a mismatch of understanding and it's about the building of trust and, you know, sort of deeper mutual understanding. And I think it's obviously quite a complex interpersonal dynamic going on here, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, and I think often policymaking can, overlook having been in a policymaking environment sometimes policymaking can really overlook those human connections or you know sort of yeah maybe even you know the structures are not easy to to foster those relationships within them Um, but absolutely it's about the interpersonal Um, so my my evidence my data has shown that it's really important important to to move from what I've called instrumental engagement of employers sort of transactional you know one-off to more relational to more in-depth and sustained whereas you say Mark it is about building trust absolutely and it is about understanding employers requirements understanding their organization whatever sector industry size and also not over promising and under delivering but the other way around always under promising and over deliver um, and also manage expectations because we talked about what well, you mentioned dignity hope and purpose and what we do see with with labor active labor market programs is that they they can perpetuate uh, low low road employment I suppose as my colleague Patrick McGurk calls it and people end up sort of churning through jobs maybe short-term jobs without getting a secure connection to the labor market without you know fulfilling their needs uh, for their life um, so it's also about managing employers expectations and what they're offering and that's been really interesting because we found that in Denmark providers of employment services were actually willing to walk away from some employers not always but in the UK it was less the case that you know it was kind of very much the the work first model of any job is better than no job <clears throat> but actually we know from evidence that that isn't the case so I think it's really important that yeah what what you were saying about the human element building of trust on all sides and um, you know and not just getting people into any job but actually a job that that aligns with their values and and it's not just short-term labor either. Yeah makes total sense do you uh, do you also see that it's kind of stigma and, and bias 
is 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 an obstacle here you know to achieving i guess a sort of wider uptake of of hiring people from these types of diverse backgrounds Definitely. And um, and I think you know, there's definite stigma and bias. We know that there, there's what we call statistical discrimination against particular groups, you know, particular attributes. It might be gender, ethnicity, indigeneity, disability, for example. Um, but also there's, I would say, within policymaking in this area, there's been a focus on what we call the deficit model. Um, but I can really see that the conversation is changing. I hope. I hope in a, in a few years that uh, that we we wouldn't be having the same conversation. But hopefully, we're, we're starting to embrace a strengths based approach. So there has been, I think, with employment services, a tendency to kind of say, you know, here's a load of people who are not really that job ready, not great employees, but expecting that the employers are going to take them on. And, you know, you can see what, what the issue is there. Why, if you're going to put forward this kind of stigmatized view of people who are unemployed and then say to employers, well, you know, give them a go, then, you know, you can't expect employers to just jump on board. And then I think from the um, employer's side, of course, I have a particular interest in recruitment and talent acquisition so there's two things going on really firstly that hiring managers in organizations hire the way they've always hired you know they might just be in a hurry they need people fast and they just don't really think critically about the job role descriptions about making jobs flexible to attract a diverse pool of candidates and then um, secondly I think um, employers really just wants more information, often education. And that's particularly the case around disability, for example. There's a, a real concern with doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. Um, so again, it's is an education piece. And, and once again, employment service providers and, and active labour market programmes have such a role to play, in my view. Let's not just perpetuate this deficit model of, you know, here's people, you know, at the lower end of the labour market and, you know, the business is just churning people through let's let's move away from that and actually move to that strengths based model actually say here are some important the people who are not in the labor market but also providers of employment services have a really critical role to play in connecting people who are not in work with employment so let's let's do things differently let's not just do the same old thing because we're probably going to end up with the same thing we had before and not actually changed well you mentioned we're in a period of critical skill shortages right so it's very timely oh. isn't it and this is an opportunity to to yeah. grasp grasp the nettle and to you know really help employers in the economy to reimagine how we i guess capture that talent that maybe others are overlooking or traditionally maybe has been overlooked so can you just share with us maybe a bit more around some of the, you know, what are the specific recruitment methods or, you know, is, is technology part of the equation that can help, you know, employers to sort of foster this? What is ultimately, you know, feels like a very positive change for society? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. We're at a critical juncture, and I think it is really, as you say, important to grasp the metal. Let's, it's, it's. I feel it's sort of not now or never. That sounds a bit doom laden, doesn't it? But it really, yeah, is a real opportunity to do things differently, as you say. Clearly, the the, the most common recruitment 
methods are still your standard interview, you know, application form interview. Um, the interview method is uh, the most critiqued employment uh, sort of <laughs> recruitment method um, within the evidence base. But that's not to say it doesn't have a place, but it's just, you know, you might want to do things differently, take a, a an open, more an open hiring approach um, like the body shop do, for example, and really sort of flip the recruitment process on its head. So again, you come from that strengths-based view. You're looking to give opportunities to people to to really shine, to to be their best self in the uh, recruitment and selection process. Uh, whereas I think you know, the standard application and interview m- methods don't necessarily give people the tools to do that. And then we've got aspects like you know making. Um, making the recruitment and selection process accessible which obviously if you've you've got someone coming for an interview well I suppose we could get into a, a big discussion about the sort of disability you know disabilities within that because that's always you know you're making things quite hard for people if they're you know on the one hand they might want to obviously declare a disability because then they can participate in the recruitment selection process but then on the other hand if you've got an employer who's already who's already got a bias against employing someone with a disability for whatever reason then it can become really problematic so really thinking there's no one size fits all approach um, but I think there's some great examples out there as, as, as I mentioned the the sort of open hiring approach to you know actually saying taking away many of the barriers within the recruitment and selection process and I think technology can help with that I think what concerns us about the use of tech uh, sort of what concerns HR practitioners and, and scholars I suppose about the use of tech within the recruitment process is that it can embed existing biases um, or you might you know use algorith- algorithms to sift out to sift out candidates at an early stage and actually you're missing out on a whole diverse pool there's a um, a great academic called Peter Capelli in the US and he has this this argument that the skills shortage this is quite this is a book going back about 10 years right but he argued that the skills shortage has been created by recruitment and selection processes uh, particularly recruitment well, yes yeah, so the selection processes that sift people out at an early stage because of keywords um, that just don't appear on application forms. So I think we really need to think critically and I suppose, again, not do things the same way that they've always been done because I think there is a tendency for hiring managers in organisations just to you know churn out the same job description and then say, well, we didn't get any applicants. And mm. yet there's all these people out out there looking for for work so there's there's a massive disconnection there right there's loads of money going into employment services there's employers looking desperate for staff um, and then there's people out there um, who want to be in the labor market so we've we've got to better connect all that and, and much of that starts with the hiring process and really looking critically at it and looking at it as a a step as one element of the whole of your HR process within your organisation, because, of course, it feeds into lots of other elements like retention and progression um, as well. And um, But let's face it, a lot of employers don't have time in their day to necessarily step back and think about this. They're just in a, in a, in a rush to get someone 
But again, that's where I think labour market intermediaries, recruitment sector, employment services as a key part of that can really or should play a role in actually taking some of that load rather than just funneling people to vacancies. Um, That sort of spraying and praying approach, Mm. as it's called, but actually, yeah, helping employers to do things differently. Just one example, I have to say, at ReadyTech and obviously being in technology, you know, this skill shortages have been very acute mm. the last two years and uh, so we we under we've actually undertaken a cadetship program uh, this year with uh with mature age females mm-hmm. and many were returning mothers um and we found some wonderful candidates uh, that we offered an opportunity to with some training and we've been able to hire in some really difficult roles and i think all because we just thought it's just about doing things differently and it's been very rewarding. So mm. uh, it's just one example of, you know, so, so many where, you know, a change of mindset and a change of model from the traditional and the traditional where everyone else is doing exactly the same thing, right. Is actually allowing you to be competitive and, and unique in the talent market. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And how did that work for for you, Mark? What was the catalyst for for doing things differently could you just talk through how it what steps you took did you bring anyone in from outside to to help you with that and I think that's the absolute critical component is the last aspect that you put your finger on is we were supported by a a wonderful organization called MEGT that were able to firstly bring the candidates to us and then really help us to to think about how we onboard and how we provide the right training and the right support, you know, to set that candidate up for success. And I think ensure that, you know, that the value exchange is, you know, is happening in the right way. Yeah. Uh, sort of bridge that, you know, maybe some of that understanding. Um, but partly you know, it was very much led by trying to hire for very difficult to fill roles. And also, of course, what it leads to is, you know, very even more deeply rewarding, you know, is a a more inclusive and more diverse workforce. And ultimately, you know, if you think about technology, uh, which is really about solving problems, um, you know, with a a broader set of of diverse people, you know, I think it puts us in a better position to, to solve problems and, you know, create meaningful outcomes for our customers as well. So, um, yeah, it's just one example of, uh, of, I think, you know, and certainly don't claim to have all the answers Joe. no but I love that and we need more of these examples right Mark we need these well calling them good news stories is a bit of a an undersell I recently collected well last year we we spoke to a bunch of employers quite difficult to get employers to, to talk to us um, during COVID but it was so important to hear their perspectives and what we were looking for was what did they see as being the benefits of engaging in employment services so I've done a lot of work on the barriers and a lot a lot about what the barriers are, but I'm now really focusing on that that's the strengths and and what does good look like and how can we build on that? And hearing the kind of example you just talked about is so important. And also, you know, for each one of those women returners to the workplace, you know, that's lives changed. It, that person's life changed, their family, their networks, you know, it. it's, uh, yeah, it, it's really, really, yes, yeah. so I think we can't sort of undersell those examples um and i'm trying to build a database of for the for the projects i've got coming on on stream a database of some good examples like that because i think again what we know is that employers learn from 
their peers. So if they see that something's possible rather than that can make a difference rather than thinking this is just too hard. It's just, you know, I'll just get on with doing things the way I do it and then hope that um, mm-hmm. I'll get a different outcome or that the labour market changes or, or something changes. But I think just having that, those examples is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Telling those stories and, and providing that social proof mm. that things, things can be done in another way and inspiring hopefully uh, to be a role model for others it's um absolutely couldn't agree more i've also found it interesting that you've reverted to type and put your researcher's hat on and started asking me questions <laughs> like i turned that around Mark. i just couldn't resist i know. wanted to know more um, <laughs> i'm glad you did so um you want actually this is an interesting area you want you once told me that you don't really like the word job seeker. And Mm. you also mentioned before that, you know, some employers actually feel maybe that, you know, with people living with disabilities that they might get the language wrong. So talk talk to us a little about, I guess, the psychology of language and how that can, I guess, sort of reinforce barriers. Yes, yeah. Yeah, becomes a a barrier to, to, to moving people into meaningful work. Yeah. So um, and I've been thinking about the job job seeker thing as well, because I think my, my objection to it is really when it's used within employment services, like we've got, you know, providers, job seekers, employers. And, you know, we, we've you know, had discussions with people within the employment services sector in the UK and Australia. And I think many people do favour saying things like clients, like you would if you were a recruitment agency you wouldn't really call your the people on your books job seekers and you know if someone wants to obviously call themselves a job seeker I'm seeking work but I was thinking that's obviously fine but I was thinking have I, I don't think I've ever called myself a job seeker apart <laughs> from where that label has been applied to me if I've had contact with you know the social security system where you are labeled you know a, a claimant or a, a job seeker so um, but I think again it comes back to what, what I was saying earlier about that that definition deficit kind of model um, where again you're just starting from a really low baseline and then um, and for me it's really about talent um, diversity council and jobs bank and uh, jobs bank are a partner in my um, Australian research council linkage grant and jobs bank and diversity council Australia do fantastic work in uh, in the areas that we've been talking about and they released a report recently around um, they released a report in 2022 um, about inclusive recruitment and they talked about um, under leveraged talent and mm. they sort of talk about you know hidden talent which is mm. something that I've always talked about because you're thinking about talent and then you know you're flipping it on its head you, you you're kind of making a positive sell to employers about the importance of active labor market programs employment or the, just employment services I think as a as a recruitment service as a as, a, as a, an HR service in the way that you know recruitment sector can help employers with their um, with their labor um, needs uh, and talent needs so I think that language is really important I think the focus of the sort of employment services policy making has for decades has been very 
deficit model based, which which I don't think has helped. You know, again, as I said before, it just sort of turns employers off, really, because that and then providers have got to work really hard to sell the benefits. And that's what I found in the UK, particularly where they were starting from a really low providers were starting from a low baseline for employers as well in actually going to them and talking about the potential. And that was very different in Denmark, where there was a, a much more positive view of activation programs um so well, i think i've lost my thread there mark the second bit of the question was about oh and disability sorry as well yeah um so and i think again like with any area i don't think people should get too hung up on making mistakes or you know because everybody makes mistakes and that's how we learn yeah I think it's important to get people in a room have a dialogue you know ask the person what it is that they need simple question what is it that you need to do your best work um, is a really powerful question and that again is moving from that kind of barriers deficit model to you know actually what can we do and it's a good thing for any organization what can we do to make sure that everybody in our organization can do their best work yeah it's quite amazing how sometimes you can just flip or reframe a discussion to take you to a, a different place you know in a vastly different place that's such a yeah it's so interesting the other thing I'd love to ask you is in your work as well and I, you know, I think for employers you know we live in a in a world where there's a lot more focus on the role that companies have on society and the impact that we have on our communities right and and the expectations and and responsibilities around that uh which is a a, a trend that I'm very supportive of is this also do you see this as the opportunity for employers to to bring in this talent that you know there's under underlooked overlooked talent should I say uh and surface that but be good for business, but also be a really great way to do do good for the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes I can. Well, there's a, there's a bit of a critical uh, a critique around CSR, right? That sometimes you know, employ organisations you know want to do good by doing something more tokenistic, like you know, on the side um, or just in addition to their day job. Whereas I think that the better way is is to do something good in your everyday workplace practices, like giving people opportunity. It's not just, I suppose, giving. Yeah, it's giving opportunities, but also yeah, allowing people within your communities, within society to flourish basically you're not you're not just doing them a favor and that has come through strongly particularly the data we have from employers in Australia is that actually the CSR kind of altruism component is is less important it's it is about business benefits it's it is about the bottom line you know you're doing this to be a a competitive business if you're working in the the for-profit sector or if your drivers are something else then you know whatever your your performance metrics are um and then the 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 doing good is also a, an added value as well but i think it just makes good business sense is what we're we're finding from the data we've got that you know the CSR aspect alone isn't going to be enough of a, a trigger which I suppose speaks to actually the, some of the stuff that Phil Preston writes about business purpose so you know the idea that purpose needs to run throughout your organization not just be something that you allude to in a strap line or a mission statement but then don't live the values of. Mm -hmm. 
totally so when they can be combined and be working together and but this is really sort of is doing good sort of sleeves rolled up doing good isn't it you know not virtue signaling when it when it really is embedded in the fabric of the company in this way exactly and like you mentioned onboarding as well from from your own example at ReadyTech and and that is so important and and again that's a role for employment service providers there's a focus on kind of pre-employment you know work preparation for their clients but it is also for the employer you know what does the employer need to support uh, or to let some allow someone to flourish in their organization and be able to support them where needed and you know particularly the role of line managers and and also co-workers just having a more inclusive environment because I think that's you know we we do find that or have found with employment services as I mentioned before the churn of people going through the system and you know for, for various reasons not sticking within jobs but quite often that is to do with the workplace or you know that the person as well or a combination of things the the individual employee has uh, some crisis that comes up and and then they just it all just falls apart but actually if I think for me it's about normalizing as well you know if you look at any workplace you're going to have people who experience personal issues on a daily basis you're never sure what's going on for the person and one thing that stood out for me with some work I did in the UK during the pandemic was in the area of um, alcohol and, and drug or sort of substance misuse and just how people involved in a particular um, project in the UK were offering training for employers about how to deal with with people within their organizations with substance misuse issues and 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 let's let's face it you know this this is an issue that could occur in any workplace right so again I sort of think for providers to be offering that kind of inclusion training, training for line managers in dealing with challenges that come up. Um, it's not just specific. And again, moving from that deficit model, yes, there are people who who are out of the workforce who you know may have experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of really um, terrible things in some cases. But I think, again, just sort of tarnishing that group and saying, you know, somehow they're sort of, fa- you know, faulty problematic um, is where it's got us into a bit of a hole but actually saying you know people do that you know we've seen the rise of mental health mental ill health during the pandemic um, and you know many more organizations becoming switched on about mental health for example and and I think that those kinds of changes within workplaces can be to the benefit of everyone both people who were already in work in helping people to remain in work um, as well as onboarding new talents and and thinking as well about how we do work differently you know the the debates that the um about that have come up during the pandemic about the great resignation or you know is everybody now working at home or are we now all returning to the office and I remember a number of us working in the disability area, particularly what we call energy limiting chronic conditions. So people with sort of um, with ME, fibromyalgia, those kinds of conditions or indeed other conditions that have, you know, if you've got chronic pain, you have this fatigue element that limits your energy. You know, so what, what struck a lot of people who've worked in disability employment was that 
after being told for decades that they couldn't do jobs flexibly overnight loads of people started working from home I mean clearly there were exceptions right if you're social care hospitality um, what I'm really passionate about as well is that we don't just go back to the old ways of working and we we build on what we've learned during the pandemic like how can we make job roles different do they have to be a full-time role could we look at splitting them up um, and these are the kinds of things I'm really we're going to be doing with our new recruitment and talent acquisition course at Deakin which is um, going to be world leading it's the only one and we really want people to think differently about recruitment and talent acquisition we want the next generation of uh, of recruitment professionals or HR professionals to, to really think differently but we also need to work with who's doing those roles now and and get them to think differently because again it's about capitalizing on the best talent. I imagine as well that when we're dealing with or onboarding some of these individuals that particularly someone who may have been out of the workforce that you know confidence and maybe you know there's a level mm. of anxiety become yeah. potential issues where you know, employers can be thinking about supporting. I think you're right that so much of these pro- this type of support is universal, right? You know, it's not necessarily exclusively for for for, for people who have um, have been unemployed, for instance. But uh, but but that just confidence, just building up that confidence, feels like a, a just an important building block. Yes, yeah, definitely, and and certainly some of the interventions that you get in, in within employability services does focus on building confidence and we were talking about this at a conference and you know the anxiety that comes with starting a new job I mean I've certainly never started a new job and not Mm -hmm. felt anxious in some way and I think even the most you know brave and confident person would have some level of anxiety and and worry about starting a new job and as you say especially if you've been out of the labor market for quite a long time or again if you're if you're doubting your skills which again um, I really applaud any efforts both on the part of employers as well as employment services providers who really look at you know that strengths-based model really looking at it you know what have people got to offer rather than saying you know thinking you've got you know a gap a cv and you've got lots of gaps in it and you know just thinking again in quite a traditional old maybe archaic way but actually thinking of how you present candidates your Mm. clients can't but candidates um uh, and help them to present themselves in the best way based on their strengths you know as you mentioned with female returners um were mothers, parents, you know, particularly mothers who've been out of the labour market. But while even while they've been caring for children, they've they've got a huge amount of skills from that. And and your case illustrates how you've really recognised that. Do you think that that government subsidies, you know, government incentives should play a role here? And uh, obviously, they're often applied. But you know, do you think they're effective? I guess the way that you know, you could think about it is that, you know, this helps the employers kind of de-risk the hire and, you know, Mm. accelerate things and, you know, unlock things, uh, you know, in that sort of value exchange, you know, do you think that that subsidies work? That's a really interesting question, Mark. And the evidence, uh, OECD evidence, and uh, particularly thinking about, uh, well, I suppose, yeah, thinking about the UK and Denmark and Australia, is that, that there is that, 
that substitution effect where you know that might incentivize you that's a debate about quotas as well incentivizing you mm. someone to take an employer to take someone on and then someone else loses out on an opportunity for example and yeah the evidence with wage subsidies does tend to suggest that it doesn't make enough of a difference the employer uh, you know might there is the dead weight so as well that they they would have taken them on anyway and then what is the purpose of it but we have I found in the data that I've collected um it was interesting actually because we were able to split the data within the data from employers about the benefits of engaging in employment services we we split the financial benefits into wage subsidies and direct financial payments so for the latter the direct financial payments it could be things like pre-employment funding you know helping somebody to get a uniform uh, working with children check police check whatever or, or even helping overcome issues or challenges that come up when someone starts work like they mm. they didn't they don't have transport so that actually although that can go to the individual rather than the employer that also has a benefit to the employer yeah. or buying uniforms but then you could be a bit critical right you could say well if somebody is being employed by a company then shouldn't the employer pay for certain things and that brings me on to thinking about you know the the disadvantages of financial support for employers I think we found that it, it can be a sweetener and as you say it can de-risk actually from both sides you've got that kind of you know, that exchange where you're saying, okay, I'll, I'll give this person a go and then I get this support and it just sweetens the deal. But in most cases, it wouldn't make the difference for an employer to take someone on if they had no intention of taking them on. And I think the danger for me is just the kind of longer term aspect. So if you look at the UK, for example, tax credits or what's now part of universal credit from evidence appears to have perpetuated low paid and employment that also you know has not led to progression for for people who've moved into work so I think there's for me there's a bit of a a red flag for policy makers in terms of you know not it's not a, a good long-term strategy. Um, it can be one of the tools in your box to have wage subsidies and certainly uh, some direct financial support to candidates moving into work. But I also think we need to get to a, a stage where employers really really understand that that they play a key role in this. Again, it's not you know them just doing everybody a, a favor and then you know you know getting tapping into some wage subsidies although having said that we did find some interesting um, examples within our data set of micro employers who had been able to grow their business because they'd been able to, to tap into this financial support so I think particularly for smaller businesses micro businesses then it, it could well play a role yeah, it's interesting, Joe. It's a really fine balance often, isn't it, when mm, the incentives mm. come into play and, you know, every action has a reaction. Yes. Sometimes what, unforeseen. Yeah. yeah, and what happens in Denmark with their wage subsidies is that they have got an, an issue where they've got employers just, you know, taking numbers of people on wage subsidies and not giving them opportunities. So it is a balance. 
One of the last things I'd love to dive into, and you've touched on it, I think, two or three times, is a very a, a cohort of people, those living with disabilities, that I know you're very passionate about. And so could you could you talk a bit about, again, employers, you know, effective approaches for unlocking the potential of of, of people living with a disability? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think I'd, I could start this part of the discussion with uh, paraphrasing a quote from Toby Milden, who's an inclusion specialist based in the UK, who is does has himself just himself has a disability uh, and other intersecting attributes. Um, so, um, and he talks about how if you make workplaces inclusive for people with disabilities, then you make them more inclusive for everyone, which I think is really powerful mm. because you're you're really starting to ask questions like and getting beyond. I think what's come out of my data and other studies is, you know, getting beyond all, you know, not everybody is a, a, a wheelchair user who has a disability. If everyone has, who has a disability is not in a wheelchair, but we found that employers often come back back to things like access requirements which is really important right and I've found that in Australia as someone with an employee with a disability myself that the accessibility of buildings in my experience for my disability has has been a lot better than my experiences in the UK and if we think about the social model of disability as it's called where that that suggests that barriers to to full participation in society for people with disabilities is is all about the the fact that barriers are constructed within society so you know we could going back to Toby Milden's point we could have people within workplaces if we just take away those barriers and some of them are physical um, but actually that it's the mindset ones that are mm. often harder I think and um, I suppose a piece of advice I would always give is and this was something that Dylan Olcott has talked about um, as well is, is is asking the person their often the best person that understands their needs and again ask you know asking questions like how do you do your best work if someone asks that of me um, you know I can talk about the things that facilitate me to do my best work and and that could lead me into some useful discussion of some useful workplace adjustments that just met, that might seem small for some people but would make a really big difference so um always um asking the person and and also not i think the thing that often will does scare employers is just the the range the heterogeneity of disabilities um and also obviously there's comorbidities like i mentioned earlier if you've got chronic pain you may well also have fatigue but that's you know people everyone's different but i think not not making assumptions but um but also as i say asking the person is so important because they will have such a good understanding and also connecting and there's lots of information out there now so I think becoming educated tapping into um, the information that's that's out there there's a lot of great people on social media talking about disability in and then again in a really positive way saying you know this is turning what's often seen as a, a kind of something very negative and a deficit into a positive but I suppose also being aware that well like with any employee there, there can be fluctuations and someone may go for 
forward and back but if you put the right create the right environment and have the right supports available again people can really flourish um, and then connecting to organizations is is important it might be um, a person with disability led organization so like you know there, there are non-profits out there other organizations that are kind of majority people with disability um, if you're looking at advice for a particular disability as well um, but I think also just thinking more broadly about inclusion you don't have to you know just think necessarily about I'm going to think about how I can include this disability and that disability but having that broader think, thinking and discussion about inclusion which as as Toby's quotes suggest you know can be of benefit to to everyone really you know accessible toilets gender gender neutral toilets that are also accessible then you're sort of maybe covering a few different areas there but as I said the mindset piece can be the the hardest one for people to get over and but hopefully we are in a place where there's you know more positive uh, depictions of people with with disability yes there is still a lot of discrimination and um, I particularly saw that in the UK um, I think we, we're seeing more positive role models um, come out and showing that and if you think that one in five Australians have a disability so again it's that that normalizing piece that we talked about earlier if you do disability educate engage in disability education through an intermediary for your workplace that's going to be of benefit to so many people if you might not even many organizations don't even know how many people they have with a disability because they've not created the right culture for people to feel safe declaring that so again it feeds into that you can't just have a oh you know I'll have a disability day where I ask everybody to say whether they've got a disability and then I think I've done my bit it's got to be more you know broader and and every day than that but also as I say creating those those broader conditions so everything you said resonates so much and if i if i may share another story from my own experience so uh we've employed several people um over the years at readytech with a disability and two 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 observations is first of all these amazing people we have retained for very long periods and i think that uh you know when I think when they are provided with an opportunity, you know, they repay that back many times over, incredibly committed. But I think secondly, you know, it's that point that you mentioned about sort of a wider sense of in inclusivity is that I think for our wider team, they've just engaged really positively, you know, with these with this program. And I think it feels really good for them. You know, I think they feel good because they're part of a part of a company, you know, it's offering these these types of opportunities. And so, you know, it's um yeah, and and what you said, I think you know, so awesome to see more attention given to this area. You know, there's amazing role models like Dylan Al Alcott. You know, it's um, you know, things are progressing positively. Mm. Interesting, you said as well about the normalising and a mindset. I remember I was talking to someone quite senior at a financial institution. I explained our commitment to disability employment. They said that's amazing, but it wouldn't work for us. And I and I and I and I thought to myself that that's absolute nonsense. It absolutely could. If, if yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Why why wouldn't it? And then yeah. you're just like you think of that 
the diversity of disabilities is like you just that immediate the you know, blinkers on is just, and again limiting they're just limiting their potential as an organization and um yeah in terms of the talent they can access and yeah there's certainly a growing evidence base about higher productivity of of people with disabilities and um you know lower absences and you know the yeah they as you say they repay several times over the investments but again getting away from that deficit based model you know there is that debate about oh maybe people with disabilities should attract lower wages and it's like well why? you know well, there's no reason why they they should and uh, you know the only reason they might be on less pay is if they're working part-time hours or may I mean that's not you know so I've always worked I've always been able to work full well pretty much always been able to work full-time actually but um, not in one role I didn't but when I'm given the right conditions to work flexibly you know I I'm really productive but you know for some people it might be that they're you know, they work part time or they, you know, because that fits in with their life. But equally, if they want to work full time, then, you know, let's look at how we can make the the environment more flexible, more supportive and inclusive. So, yeah, that's great to hear what you've been doing at ReadyTech, Mark, and keep Thank up you, that. So, great. It's it's good that it, what I've said resonates because I think, you know, it, and I think there will be employees out there who think, oh, yeah, I, just, I don't know how to get that done. I just can't do that. But I think, the, you know, there are plenty of organisations out there that can assist. There's a lot of information. I think just taking that first step of saying, saying I want to do things differently in the organization and now is yeah, what better time than now to take that step and try things mm. try exactly. new things experiment yeah yeah because yeah. not yeah. everything's going to work but That's then doing right. things the same old way is yeah. doesn't seem to be working that no. well for everyone either <laughs> no and expect the same results <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly so. exactly yeah so time, when I'm speaking to you, time really, really flies <laughs> because I love speaking to you. But uh, thank you. But Joe, I'd really, I'm just so I'm going to finish with a big question, and I just want to ask you if there was one thing that you would change about the world of of employment to create a better world, oh. what would it be? Oh, that is that is really hard. Um, I think if I had to pick one thing to change, it would um, it would be something on the lines of maybe like what we were saying about being your best self, getting the best out of people, which I think would cover workplaces. It would cover employment services, you know, because employment services have staff as well. Right. So they need to think about how they yeah give the create the conditions where people within their organizations can flourish so i think it's really yeah creating the 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 conditions to, so that people can meet their potential maybe exceed it if they want to do that but which also takes us back in takes us into thinking about what you said earlier about hope dignity and purpose as well how people can can flourish within workplaces because i think for still for too many people work is is not good it ends up like with my own parents it damaged their bodies you know their mental health wasn't a great experience and like for your grandfather as well so let's uh, let's make work better by helping yeah creating conditions where people can flourish love it so much joe 
Ingold, thank you so much for the awesome discussion. You're really inspiring. Oh, bless you, Mark. Thank you. Well, it was great speaking to Joe on the show today. And to you, the listener, I hope you enjoyed the discussion and we're inspired to reimagine and redesign how you might attract and retain talent while also doing some good along the way. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Ready Podcast on your favorite streaming service. And I hope you tune in again very soon.